Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. My name is Eugene. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. Uh, we're three pastors and three friends conversing on life, culture, and church off the pulpit. Uh, thanks for listening in. Uh, and as usual, we'll always start with our mailbag. Uh, so again, these are questions sent by you. So if you have any for the future, uh, feel free to Instagram us on, uh, at off the pulpit. Uh, let's go through. Okay, first. Um, and again, there was a lot this week, so we can't get to all of them. So I apologize. But uh, are fortune tellers and shamanism real? Can people actually see ghosts and spirits? Uh, and any thoughts on the occult and uh, demonic activity and fortune? Have you guys ever got fortune telling or a psychic reading before? I did once. What? Like it was like it was when it was one of those like on on like Venice Beach or something when I was like, you know, like I, I was in college or something. Oh, okay. It was like oh. a tarot. It was like a tarot card reading. Do you remember your reading? No, but I remember like. It was one of the, 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 they were using like really general uh, things, you know? I see, I see. I, uh, I actually, I think the occult is real, mm-hmm. but I also, I don't think all like, all fortune tellers are legit or like real, but I, I, I don't mess with like the demonic and like, a, yeah. you know, a, I, I think they're, you know, I think it is real. Hmm. I mean, it happened in Second Samuel, right? Where... That lady brought up Samuel, the ghost of Samuel. So there's biblical warrant. Yeah, I agree. I think it's real. Um, just, just don't do it, man. Yeah, just don't. Just don't. No Ouija boards and no, none of that pentagram stuff. Uh, so next, uh, are there periods you three go through where you doubt your own faith? Um, what do you do about it and how do you get through it? Good question. Uh, we've had an episode on doubt and deconstruction before. But I guess personally, uh, if you guys feel open to share, like, yeah, do you guys go through doubts as a pastor, especially for you two as a lead pastor? Um, and what do you do when you go through those cycles, if they are cycles? I mean, I do. And I don't, I think before I used to see it, like a lot of Christians see it, which is something's wrong with this. Um, but I think what's worse is when you have doubts and you try to just stuff it away or you try to just preach the gospel to yourself and ignore what those doubts are. But I think those doubts are telling you something. And so to me, those doubts are actually moments where you deepen your faith or you're deconstructing something that's not strongly constructed. So to me, I I go through it, not like all the time, but it's not abnormal. Um, And I think it's actually important to um, pay attention to like what those doubts are telling you. Yeah, I mean, same. Um, I feel like pastors go through it a lot um you know and yeah like you know pretty much like every there's always like a moment on monday morning or sunday night after you've preached there is always like that moment of like i don't know if it's because you're like tired or or the enemy is attacking you or something but where you wonder like it is anything I'm doing right now like it like it like it, is it is it all is it real you know yeah. um I remember like the first few times I ever did like hospital visitations mm. you know and I was praying for a family you know whose whose family member was sick or on their deathbed you know and you're trying to give these words of encouragement but 
you know, the, the thoughts always go through your mind, you know, like, and I think, yeah, I, like Tom, I think at first I was really afraid to express any of those doubts, especially given my role. Um, but I find now that um, when I do express them honestly, um, not only is it better, is, is it, um, I think, good for me, but also um, I actually think it, it humanizes you to your congregation as well. And so um, all that to say, yeah, I mean, I had, I, I, I had like a mini existential crisis right before Easter last year. And I shared it in my Easter sermon where like, I don't know why, like this one day I was prepping the sermon and I, I legit asked like, what if the resurrection never happened? You know, what, what if like none of this ever happened? And it was kind of a scary moment, but what an awesome um, Easter sermon to give. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's what I said. I was like, sorry guys. <laughs> hey, but we have the most reason to doubt because we have to like, not just believe, but tell people to believe so all the more you have to like almost feel like you're confident in this right yeah 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 because if christianity isn't real like if you're listening you're not path like nothing much will change but if it isn't real for us we're wasting our lives basically so i think it's normal to go through that existential yeah. crisis i think jason summed it up best i think the way i go through it and i think all three of us will agree um yeah we do go through it but it's just realizing like i think that's a normal part of faith and mm -hmm. maturing into it like when you read the gospels the disciples doubted Jesus all the time, right? Like Thomas did, Peter did, and Peter built a church. So I think just realizing like, oh, this isn't abnormal. I mean, if it it's a prolonged period of doubt, maybe we can have a different discussion. But I think just normalizing it and realizing these are just cycles and seasons you go through. Like read the Psalms. You, you, whoever's writing it, most likely David, like he had a lot of doubts too. Um, so that helps me the most. And, and just talking it out with people uh, and realizing you're not alone, I think is the most helpful. Mm -hmm. So hope that was helpful. A couple other questions. Uh, thoughts on the AI, or thoughts on AI and church moving forward. Uh, we've talked about this, but we've used ChatGPT recently. If you haven't used ChatGPT, that thing is crazy. Uh, it's going to end homework as we know of it, but- um, And sermons. Yeah, dude. <laughs> hey, if you hear your pastor's sermon sounding different, they're using the AI. <laughs> Dude, I, I used it this week. It was so good. Anyways, Anyways, for your sermon? I, I just typed in, give me a sermon outline for John 17. And I was like, wait, this this makes more sense than my sermon right um, But anyways, yeah, thoughts. It's it's pretty scary. I mean, I we've done, I think there's AI painting that's been out for a while. That's been kind of crazy. But the chat function is pretty insane. I, I think it's going to literally make some jobs like obsolete in, in within years, uh, maybe even a couple months. But I guess for you guys, any general thoughts on AI and the church moving forward? So that thing just grabs like all the articles from the internet and just composes them together, right? But it's learning. It's Yeah, it's constantly oh. learning. Yeah, yeah. So every time you ask a question, you're making it smarter because it helps oh. you refine it. So oh, it's God. like Skynet, basically. Yeah, so they actually say that in the future, like our kids, it's not going to be how good of a writer are you? It's going to be how good of a prompter are you? You know, how good are you at like prompting the AI to produce, you know, the material that you want it to produce? I mean, it's terrifying for me. I mean, I've been researching it all week and I've been having 
you know, I've been talking to my staff about it and talking to so many different people about it. And yeah, it just, it, it feels like the world is really moving in the direction of further disconnection and just digitization. Um, I just, I mean, I don't like, I just don't know what the future of human interaction is going to look like. You know, I'm, I'm reading articles and blog posts, people saying that the AI will know you and be able to quote unquote serve you better than your spouse can, you know? And I'm like, what does that even mean? What, you know, what's that one movie where you like you date the AI? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, um, her, her, oh, her, that's right. yeah, that's her. Like, that's the yeah. near future now. That's not even no exactly. Fantasy. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I'm I'm just very curious as to you know what. I think like historically there there have been these huge move like movements in technology. And I think the church was always kind of, po the question was posed. And we had um, J.K. Mon talking about analog church. And, you know, I think it there, there are these crossroads moments of like, in what ways will the church kind of adapt and and speak the language of the culture? And um, in what ways will the church kind of subvert culture and provide alternatives um, to give people, you know, what they're really looking for, what they're really longing for. And I'm just curious as to see how the church is going to respond to, to AI in general. Mm. Anything to add, Tom? You guys know about this more than me. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Jason. I, I have, it's, it's scary, but on the, on the flip side, we, we've, we've been through this rodeo before too, where any, any new trend, like a church is like, this will ruin everything it's, and it's true like i mean it has and it hasn't you know like so I, I don't know but i will say this is not some like normal trend this is gonna change the world so we'll see hopefully we still have a job uh, in a couple of years um couple couple last questions uh you guys are all oh this is an interesting question you guys are all great at uh asking inquisitive intentional questions during your interviews do you have any tips on asking good questions so any any wisdom in asking good questions, actually, that's a good question to ask. But for you guys, any any wisdom on that? I think just be curious. Like, if you're curious about things, you will naturally ask interesting questions that that you uniquely want to know. So you're not like just asking a question to get an answer, so that you could get an audience. But you you want to know what the answer is. I feel like we all are uniquely wired. Um, so just be curious, and again, read a lot. Because when you read a lot, it just makes you even more curious about what's out there. So those would be my two suggestions. Yeah, Jason agrees. I We always pick guests we want to have on. So I think it's easy for us to ask questions because they're people that we either respect or we've learned from. Um, but to Tom's point, I think reading is really good. And just ask, don't ask like, just ask very specific questions you want answered. I think if you, when you ask general questions, it does it does no one any good. Um, so just hope that helps. Um, lastly, uh, this is an interesting question. This, I don't, it might be controversial. Maybe not. Um, any advice in ministering to socially awkward members in your church community? Um, mm. I, it's interesting cause I think in any community or group of people, there is always like a, a wave of like 
the cool kids, the normal, the, the kind of people who just get along and those that might be socially awkward. So I guess in the church, when we're called to be a, a supernatural group or a community or a family, um, how do you deal with people, maybe on the outskirts, maybe that can't connect well? Um, any thoughts on that? So hard because so sh- that phrase socially awkward is so subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the church is a family, um, how would you treat a family member of yours who was socially awkward? Um, I think, you know, you love them and I love them the way Jesus loves them. I don't know. That's a kind of a cliche answer, but. I feel like if there's any place that should be a safe space um, for people who are maybe in other other settings are kind of outcasted or marginalized, I think it should be the church. Yeah. Now, obviously, socially awkward, I, why I say it's difficult, though, because I know that there are scenarios in which socially awkward means, I don't know, like, let's say, like, a guy's making, like, a lot of your the sisters at your church feel very uncomfortable because of the way he talks to them. You know, uh, there's there's obviously a, there's obviously wisdom and discernment there. Um, But in general, I think a lot of times the church, we treat the church and we um, act at church no different than we do in like a high school cafeteria, which I think is problematic. hundred percent. Yeah, I think, um you can't I'm, I'm not sure if you could change someone from to be not socially awkward but i feel like one thing you can do is help them to be aware that they're socially awkward because if you say socially awkward it's awkward but if they say sorry that was awkward it makes everyone feel okay like okay you know you're being awkward so i i feel like just a lot of conversations and pointing out like loving rebukes almost of how it makes the room feel um the awareness i feel like is key even though that that's hard too but i do think like conversations with intimate people who are willing to talk to you. I feel like that matters a lot. And to Jason's point, I think that also protects people in the church that might feel that that line between socially awkward and creepy is, can be thin often, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just misunderstandings, but sometimes it's legit predatory behavior. And I think to Tom's point, not that you call it out, but I think if something is either awkward or uncomfortable, I think, and not, maybe not publicly, but if you're part of a church, like pulling them aside, telling them like, hey, and even that group, like it was just kind of weird what are your thoughts or like, hey, you're doing this and you're making people feel uncomfortable. Just what are you, what do you think about that? I think that's really key because that's how a healthy family, I think, should function. Yeah. So those are my only thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, Pete Scazzaro always talks about how so much of whether it's, you know, what we perceive to be social awkwardness or emotional unhealth or, you know, kind of behavior that, like so much of who we are is shaped by our, you know, families of origin or our experiences and things like that. And he used, constantly uses the language of the church being a, a community of people that essentially reparents hmm. people into the gospel. And so I do think you know, um, sometimes those conversations that Tom just mentioned could be really great opportunities, you know, to help essentially reparent uh, people into a different mindset or different way of being, you know. Um, 
even 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 at the very least even if you call if you were to call something out and lovingly rebuke someone for some kind of behavior or some kind of action for them to know that like you're not going to abandon them but hey this is you're a part of our community and we want you know we actually want to be a community together and so this is something i'm saying in love yeah. i think that does does a lot for a person i agree you want to add anything tom there's a good book on this it's called that was awkward by sammy rhodes he's a christian and if you're someone oh, it's, it's written for like the church context yeah mm-hmm. oh wow. that it, that was awkward and if you don't understand what he's saying he's especially talking to you so <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a good yeah. list, though. All right, good book to keep in the docket. Um, hope that was helpful. Jason, were you going to add anything to end? Uh, I was going to say, do you find that, you know, no no offense to Gen Z, but I feel like <laughs> social awkwardness is going to be more and more an issue, you know, uh, moving forward. Well, what's weird is Gen like, Z, they're not, they're awkward in person, but online, they're like socially fantastic. That's the thing. Exactly. You but know, I that just sounds very mentally unhealthy. Like if there's a, you know, that big of a dissociation. Not, I, I I agree, but it's funny because when I talk to Gen Z, Zers, and they're honest with me, they're like, "But we find all you guys like really yeah, awkward." That's true. <laughs> so it's like this that's like two way street. But I do agree, I, and AI is not going to help, especially <laughs> if, you, if you have an AI spouse that's better than a human spouse. However scary that sounds. Um, but yeah, so hope that was helpful. Again, if you have any questions, DM us anytime, and we usually have a story up before we record. But this week, we wanted to talk about, uh, and I believe this will be our last episode for 2022. But to close off 2022, we wanted to have an episode just chatting about dealing with difficult people that might sound harsh. But I think all of us, especially as pastors, we understand that to be human is to be in relationship. But in those relationships in a broken world, you deal with a lot of pain, you deal with a lot of difficulty with friends, with family, with church members. And oftentimes, there's not really good, practically flushed out teaching on it. Um, I think you were taught, oh, hey, forgive someone. But what does that look like? Hey, reconcile with someone. What does that look like? Uh, what does it even look like to be relationally in pain? So we want to just kind of dive into all of that. I'm sure all of us will have a lot of thoughts. And Jason, Jason's going, I don't know this public, but you're going through the cohort with Pete Scazzaro to you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so hopefully he can draw some insights from Pete Scazzaro is kind of the uh, emotional guru of the Christian world. But I guess one question I want to start the whole discussion with was for all three of us, um, especially for you two, because you as a lead pastor, um, I think you guys see a lot. You see people from a different angle. Um, what do you feel like is the most hard? What do you feel like is the hardest type of relational pain or difficulty most people will have to deal with? Like, I, I think, you know, you go through breakups or spouses fighting or whatever it may be. But I guess as pastors and you see just your members' congregants' lives, like, what's the main type of relational difficulty that you foresee all of us have to deal with uh, in the future at one point? Well, from my limited experience, I think the relationship that has the greatest impact on all your other relationships is parent-child. I find that childhood wounds show up everywhere. Um, And and I, you know, having done a lot of premarital counseling now and marital counseling, 
counseling between friends. Um, I just, the, the theme that shows up over and over again is like family of origin, you know? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there's like, um, yeah, I, I, I know that wasn't really the question. Cause no, no, no. It's, what you're saying is like your past trauma from your family of origin usually maps onto all relational pain. I think that's what you're getting at. Basically. Yeah, that's what I've seen. No, I, I agree with that too. Um, Tom, mm-hmm. any, any thoughts on that general question too? Yeah, generally, I think it's like the people you're stuck with. Because mm-hmm. there's some people you can't, you know, like husband and wife. If you have, especially have kids, if you're going through a hard time, you can't really just drop them. You have to like learn to deal with them. Same with your parents. Like, even though you move out, like they're still your parents. So you can't run away from those relationships. So those are like yeah. the hardest. I do think though, this is, I'm not sure this is like opening a can of worms, but the one type of relationship that we have the least tools on what to do with is friends. Mm-hmm. Like when you have a fallout with like your spouse or with your kids, there's a lot of resources out there. There's like counseling, there's books. But when it comes to like broken friendships, there's not a lot of resources out there. Like, what do you do when you have a fall with your friend? And those tend to be the ones that are really wounding, not because that friendship was more powerful than like your struggle with your spouse or your parents, but you just don't have the resources to mend it. So I feel like we're lacking tools on what to do with broken friendships. And so there's a lot of conversations that I have with people. Mm. That's actually a good point because in some ways, they're they're like the easiest to they're they're yeah. really hard to navigate, but they're the easiest types of relationships to let go of. Yeah, you know, and you feel kind of weird, like you know, sharing someone. Oh yeah, this friend like hurt me, and so yeah, like, yeah. he was my. You know what I mean? Like if you bring out like a yeah. previous like romantic romantic relationship, people could understand that, but friendship is yeah. almost awkward to say that and dignify in that way. So it's weird. It's almost like a it's an embarrassment where like yeah, it's, yeah. it's like it's socially acceptable. As, dude, I'm struggling with my wife or husband. But yeah. if you're like, dude, I'm struggling with my best friend. Yeah. You're just going to be like, dude, just like she, she didn't want to date me anymore. It's like, okay. Or he didn't want to be my friend anymore. It's like, oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of weird. No, no, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I want to get into that too, especially with friendships. Because I think the majority of our episode, I want to spend on time, like Tom said, with relationships that often aren't talked about or, or, or thought about uh, deeply. But I guess this might be be an obvious question but i i want to see if we can dig a little bit deeper too what why are people and relationships you know as tom mentioned friendships jason mentioned family why are we bound to have pain and stress points i i, I get it we live in a broken world as pastors but i guess for you guys is there anything in particular in relationships or patterns that you've seen that you're like man just these type of patterns cause difficulty cause pain cause stress points that might be helpful because i think people are stuck in these cycles and they can't see them so I guess for you guys, we can go either meta or, or you know, very practical. But yeah, what are, what is, why, why do we have relational difficulties in this life? I mean, at the meta level, you have like two sinners being in relationship together. So obviously there's going to be conflict when that happens. So I think a lot of us have heard that. I do think a lot of it though has to do with what Jason was saying, like the things that you carry over. Um, mm. C.S. Lewis has a funny like description where he was saying like the thing that your spouse or someone close to you tells you that you're you need to change like they're not the first person to tell you that like everybody's been telling you that in very subtle ways and you're starting just to, like finally get it now when someone tells you pointedly and so i think it's in other words the things that we carry over and the dysfunctions that we have it's it it 
transmits to every relationship. That's why like the same issues you go through with your first girlfriend, even though in different form, it rises again in the next girlfriend because it wasn't her. It's the stuff that you're carrying. And we're, we're really, we really have a hard time admitting that or dealing with that. So I think it's because we carry that over in every relationship, you see it in all the relationships that you're in. Mm-hmm. Jason, I know you mentioned specifically families of origin. And I guess to kind of, to Tom's point, to kind of stay in that a little, maybe a little bit, like what are the main patterns of brokenness that you've seen that kind of roll over into present difficulties that you're dealing with? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, for example, um, I, uh, I think if your relationship with your parents was a certain way or or they treated you a certain way and if if let's say you haven't been able to forgive your parents for some of the things they've done to you i think it maps on to your relationship with any authority figure in your life you know um they almost become your father or your mother talking to you again you know yeah. and so you know if they a boss who says hey you know, I think you could improve on your performance. All of a sudden, it's you're like 10 years old and your dad is saying you're never going to amount to anything in your life because yeah. you suck, you know? And, um, and you know, so I think because of so much of, of those family of origin issues, unresolved trauma, unresolved hurt, it shapes our our needs and it shapes our expectations of certain relationships. So let's say things we didn't get from our parents, you know, the love that we didn't get or the care or the attention, yep. we start to seek that in other people. You know, we, you know, sometimes we put those expectations on a significant other, you know, expecting them to provide for us the things that we never got as children. And when you have expectations, a lot of times those expectations are not communicated clearly or they're just not reasonable and they were never meant to be placed on that person. And you have two people doing that to each other. Um, the recipe is pretty much disaster. Kind of like translating to friendships, right? Um, to Jason's point and to Tom's point. Like expectations, you know, in family, that's kind of exp- like it, it's it's normal to do so. Although we don't do it, right? Um, but it's even hard to do that in friendships. Like you, you never have friends. I don't know. I don't know about you guys. But in friendships, it's never a talk where like, hey, these are my expectations of you as a friend, right? That's just kind of weird. But I think because of the lack of that, I'm not saying that we should do that, but because of any lack of communication, the past just melts so deeply with the present um, and and friendships suffer because of that, right? And and we never, ever processed our past, speaking very generally for most of us. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser puts it really well. Jason quotes him a lot too. He says, whatever you don't transform, you'll transmit. So basically, like, whatever you don't work on, that's going to be the pain in relationships you deal with for the rest of your life. And I've seen that true in my own therapy with, uh, you know, my marriage or even my friendships. So I, I, I think it's so crucial to have these talks because we, we, we love to talk about, like, self-therapy. Uh, but usually it just amounts to, like, feeling good about yourself and cutting people off and having, like, a, an out, like a out to do so. But no work's really being done uh, in, in all that, too. So I, I want to be able to kind of just like, okay, how do we work through all that, the past and the present? Um, but one question I want to ask, I guess kind of focusing, okay, 
we've already did, done some episodes on like family of origin and therapy in the past, so you can look that up. But I guess dealing with like current relational stress, drama, and friends and romantic relationships or whatever it may be, like this is a very general question, so you guys can take it where you want. But how, like, how should you deal with relational difficulty? Um, what should you do when there is difficulty in any type of relationship? Like, what are the steps that you guys would advise your people or, or members or our listeners? So I give three kind of maybe general principles and maybe Tom can add, Tom or you can add to this. Yep. But um, I would say we should deal with relational pain honestly, um, patiently, and hopefully. And I guess what I mean by that is, and the, and they're all really hard given the state of our culture right now. So first, honestly, I feel like you you have to be honest about the ways that maybe you've been hurt or that you've hurt another person. Yeah. Um, whether that's to the person or to God, hopefully both. But I think um, right now it's like, is what I, what I see really sorely lacking in relationships in general, and I speak for myself, is candor. You know, I just see so much hiding and um, not communicating your feelings, not you not you know not saying what's really going on, and I think just again like the way our culture is in this di digital world makes that really easy. Second thing is patiently, and I would say that's really hard too because we're living in a time of immediate gratification, and yep. so we want to fix problems really fast. But we relationships are so messy. And there's so much tied up in them, especially if we're talking about family of origin stuff that's been unresolved for so long or, or that's that's been stagnant. I think we have to give ourselves time and understand that these things are going to be a process. So a lot of times, like when a problem doesn't get resolved between friends or spouses, like in one day, they're like, what's going on? You know, something's like we can't fix this. Yeah. But I think people have to understand that all of these things are going to be a process. And the last thing I think, especially as Christians, that's really important is to go through relational pain, hopefully. And what I mean by that is we just finished a, a series at our church on the fruit of the spirit and kind of like the, the overarching theme at the beginning is I think like when we, whenever we talk about like the fruit of the spirit, we we're always either thinking about, the things in ourselves or the things in the people in our lives that they lack or that we lack. And I think as Christians, it's really hard to become cynical about ourselves and, and other people, but it's so important that we believe in the promise of the gospel that like, I mean, to quote Rocky, like if you can change and I can change, like we all can change, right? <laughs> you know, and 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 what I hear awesome. so much when I talk to people at our church going through relational things is he or she's never going to change. Yeah, yeah. Like what is the point? Yeah. You know, and you understand when that that is how the world will speak and the you know, you get rid of toxic people in your life, like, you know, just leave friendships that aren't doing you any good, but I feel like especially in the church it's so important to walk through relational pain 
actually believing that you or the other person can change that not by your own strength obviously but that god has the power to change you and or your loved ones hey if russia could change that person can change <laughs> <laughs> if the if rocky could solve the cold war with one boxing match man we can change you know of those three things you mentioned i feel like the well, not the most important but the one that that especially Asian Americans get stuck with is the honesty one. Yeah. Yes. Like we don't want to admit something hurt us. And, you know, it, it's rare for me to see friendships explode. They tend to like implode. Like it's like this slow death of like distance of not hanging out and it's both like a, parties are war, kind of confused. Right? It's a very cold war. Yeah. Yeah. Very so, um, yeah, I, there's a, one paradigm I was put, it's like there's hot anger and there's cold anger. Uh, Asian Americans, we tend to, especially with friendships, we express cold anger, not hot anger. And so because of that, it makes it even hard to do the other two because you don't even know what you're fighting about. And you're, it takes so long for you to finally admit it that now you're confused about how it all began. So there's like this harmonious culture that we naturally have where we want to keep things cool, keep things har harmony. Um, and it makes it where you're not being honest with your feelings and pains. Yeah. To Tom's point, there's like so many instances where you ask this person like, "Hey, are we cool?" Like, oh yeah, we're cool. And then you hear from everyone around you like, "They're not cool with you, man." Like that. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> and and I get it, right? It, it, to Tom's point, it's like we want to save face. It, it, we've been ingrained like harmony and and all that stuff. But man, that stuff is like it's. This is what starts these patterns that our kids have and our kids have, and it's just like so bad. It, it, it's the worst because I'll sometimes have like you know I hear someone's not cool, so I'll talk to them, and at the end like, hey, we're cool, like dude, we're cool. And afterwards, someone tell me, dude, they're not cool with you still. I'm like, dude, I thought <laughs> we were cool. Yeah. Always happens. Yeah, and I, you know, it's like in, especially in our culture, and may, even in the church, like it you want to be the bigger person or at least yes. be perceived as the bigger person, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's always like, oh, no, that didn't bother me or that's fine or like I'm over it. But everything about you and everything about the way you, you're you acting after that point shows that you're not over like, it. You're clearly not over it. Show me it. your DMs to your friends. If you're if you're cool, show me. No, totally agree. And I think it goes back to we never deal with our our family of origin stuff. We tell ourselves we're okay. And then because it, and then it gives you this an excuse of like, you're always going to be okay. So just don't tell yourself you got hurt and you try and protect yourself that way. And I think because of that, to Thomas point, so much of like, you know, once an Asian American church passes like 10, 15 years, you got to always step around like eggshells in, in so many places because of that. Right. Cause it's just layers and layers and layers, like in the elders and the community groups and even making community groups, right? You have to be like, oh, <laughs> they're not cool. Or like, oh, this leader is like, you know, it's just like, oh, like, dude, this is the whole point of church. Like, hey. forgive one another. That's hey. like in the, in the, people in don't know the stress of putting together community dude. groups. Oh my goodness. Dude. Yes. Or how many like last yeah. minute trades happen, like draft, you know what I'm talking about? Anyways. Like this person in LA is like, why am I in the Irvine group? Like, well, <laughs> there's, a re there's a reason why. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and to be honest, it, you know, in Asian American circles, the majority of us did not see this kind of candor modeled in our homes. Very true. You know, the way our parents dealt with conflict was they didn't talk about it, you know, or I mean, and, and for sure, there's like we weren't allowed to express anything to our parents, yeah. you know, because yeah. 
there you know there was that very strong filial piety hierarchy you know and so just that there's not really a culture even of honestly expressing your feelings and having that be received in a positive way and to three points right we can talk a lot about honesty we can go on but even to your last point i think that's really hard to do as an immigrant or an asian american i think immigrants by nature if you live in an immigrant family you're just cynical by nature because your parents were cynical about everything they're cynical about your neighbors or how they're you're raised or like you know your white family that told you you can keep your shoes on at home and you're taught like always be cynical and that also i think i've seen bleed into relationships where it's funny because like we play a cold war to tom's point but the the like emotional damage also that we carry like people are dead to people in the asian american church like there mm-hmm. is no and we'll talk about forgiveness and reconciliation in a little bit but for some people it's like hey that person is dead to me like why it's just like oh you know like he, he didn't pick me for whatever like uh, i shouldn't say anything specific but um it's and it's just like it's funny because we're super passive we lie and then on top of all that people are dead to us forever and it's just like dude this is it's such a toxic relational culture that we build in our churches and it's funny right because the moment there is a person willing to be honest they're like blacklisted from the community <laughs> you know we're like oh they're aggressive or you know so true. uh and so it's like a it's a losing battle yeah you know yeah yeah that's so true um so i, I guess with that uh before we get into you know like okay how can we move towards progress in dealing with difficult people I guess one thing I would ask you guys is like, what happens if we do? And we kind of talked about it a little bit, but what happens if we don't do those three things, Jason, or like to Tom's point, what if we don't process any of this? What, what, like we've talked kind of about the after effects, but let's just talk about for your own self, for the own soul. Like, yes, people are difficult around you, but what's a warning you would give to listeners about, look, if you don't deal with this, if you don't learn to forgive or if you don't try and fight towards reconciliation, this is going to happen to you. Like, do you, have you guys seen any, examples or any thoughts on that i think the lie that happens is you'll do this with your friends but it's like but you know it won't happen like my marriage i'll deal with it like in that relationships that really matter but if your body is like trained to deal with it this way you're not going to gain these new muscles to all of a sudden try in these new relationships that's all you know and so i do think the consequences it's more severe in the more intimate relationships that you're in. Because again, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about happens like in your 20s where you're like dealing with like friend groups and you're just kind of avoiding them at one point and that's just kind of life. But then when you get into marriage or you get into deeper circles of friends, what's going to make you change? Like you're used to just avoidance and you're used to not being honest with your pains and that happens in marriage all the time. And so I do think the consequences are just going to be a lot more difficult that you have to deal with um, if you don't know how to deal with it in the less consequential relationships in your life. Mm. And parent, like, you know, Tom mentioned, like, deep friendships and, and marriage, and I think that's true. But when you become a parent, and I, I'm, I'm a very young parent, but even I am so spiteful with my four-year-old and my three-year-old. <laughs> like, if they do something, I, like, I won't let it go. Like, if Eli, like, accidentally, like, hits me in the face, I'm, like, pissed for the rest of the day, you know? And I'm like, why, why is that? Maybe I have anger issues. But, yeah, to Tom's point, like, you're going to become just, like, whatever traumatic event your parents caused you if, if you don't learn to, like, break that pattern hopefully with the gospel and with the spirit working in you so yeah i totally agree 
Nothing's more yeah, silly. Nothing's more silly than when you avoid your four-year-old child because you're angry, <laughs> <laughs> hoping they'll get they'll get the clue. It's like they're not gonna get it, man. <laughs> they're four, bro. Like, what are you I know. I, I've definitely done. I've definitely like given my kids the silent treatment. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um, yeah, no, so true. I mean, either you'll become exactly like your parents, or you'll you'll like swing to the other side and do like try to do everything opposite of what your right, parents right. did yeah yeah and it's still you know i mean it it's just as bad you know and, and you're and you still haven't resolved like everything that you're doing is still being dictated mm -hmm. by that hurt that you have from your parents mm -hmm. um so yeah and i mean i i guess like you know i i think about romans 12 21 you know do not be overcome by evil. Um, and, and you know, it's like that, that phrase, overcome by evil, you know, but overcome evil with good. I think a lot of times we think that if we, you know, if we don't forgive or we don't deal with relational pain, like we'll just stay at whatever level we're at. But really like, like evil it, and sin, it, it begins to overwhelm you. You know, I think the word overcome is a good word. Like anyone who's ever held a grudge before, it's like a when that bitterness or that grudge is allowed to fester inside you, like the every conversation you're talking about that person, every conversation you're kind of self-justifying yourself, it grows and grows until kind of there's gonna be that a Will person, Smith moment that happens, right? <laughs> literally, there's gonna be a Will Smith moment. It's a Will Smith moment. Yeah, and that person oh, is man. like fully at that, by the end of it all, that person, what might have started as a small offense, that person in a few years is like completely dehumanized yeah, in your they're, mind. They're demonic. Like they're not, they're they're demonic. not a human being anymore in your mind. Yeah, they're almost like a caricature of a human, you know, at that point. Um, Anne, Anne Lamont, or Jason, we all know this quote probably, but Anne Lamont has a quote that sums up that really well. Like when you don't, when you choose not to forgive someone, it's like ingesting poison and hoping the other person dies. That's what you're doing, mm -hmm. basically. Because when that when you characterize or when you caricature that person, that has effects on your soul, man. Because like the you, you shouldn't treat human beings like a like a demonic en entity. That's not you know what I'm saying that's not good. That's not how you're wired in your in your spiritual DNA. Um mm -hmm. so uh, Tom, are you gonna add anything? Nope. That's so good. so with that, um I wanna kinda use the second half of our episode to talk about okay. We, we, we can spend hours talking about how toxic and messed up, you know, all this is. And it's all true. But how do we start progressing? Uh, how do we start processing? How do we start healing? Um, you know, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. And I believe that to be practical, not just theoretical. So I guess mm -hmm. I want to talk because you know the thing in church. You, you're like you're always taught hey, forgive, love one another, reconcile. But when you really ask yourself, like, okay, what does it look like to forgive a friend that has backstabbed me? What does it look like to reconcile with um, a, sm a small group leader that said a comment that's just weird to me, right? I think those practical steps often are missing in the church. So I want to spend the second half kind of building that bridge for our listeners. But I guess one question I want to ask, uh, and sometimes I get mixed up with this too, um, you know, we we all want to progress and forgive and reconcile. What's the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness? Uh, that might be a good starting point to, to get this going. Yeah, that one's important because it, it's so different. 
for, uh, forgiveness we as Christians are called to do. Because as Christ has forgiven us, we are also to forgive others. Um, and that means that it's something that we are all have the capability of doing. And it's more of an internal disposition of the heart where the offense that they have committed against us, are we willing to let that go of vengeance, of punishment, of cold war? Can we do that? And that's actually up to you. Uh, so that's forgiveness. Uh, reconciliation, though, that's when you and the other party are coming together and are at peace with one another. So it's not up to you. It's up to both of you now. And that's similar to like the, the cross. At the cross, Jesus forgave us and paid for the penalty of our sins. But reconciliation happens when we place our trust in Jesus and choose to, to love him and to follow him. And so you have that picture that takes where it's actually the two of us for that to take place. And so forgiveness, it's on your, it's up to you. That's work of the spirit. Reconciliation it has to happen where you guys meet and talk about it. And I actually think it's really important you do that in order. If you try to meet with that person before you forgave them, you probably are not going to come away really being cool. And that's why those weird relationships happens where you try to hash it out and you go, we're cool, we're cool. And you walk away and you still don't hang out. It's still weird because most likely you didn't do the hard work of actually forgiving them before that took place. Oh yeah, anything, Jason? No, totally agree. And yeah, and I and and I don't think that forgiveness also doesn't mean that things have to go back to exactly what it was before. You know, I don't think, you know, um, I wouldn't even say reconciliation yeah. means that a like uh, a relationship has to go back to exactly what it was. Um, but I agree. I think it's about making peace. It's about, you know, restoration. It's about both parties co coming together. Um, but yeah, I think that distinction is is really important because I think when because we conflate the two people actually because they feel like they can't reconcile, they will also not for, do the forgiveness part. Yeah. Although I, I believe it's true. Reconciliation doesn't mean getting back to where it was, but I think the gospel and, and the ministry of reconciliation is there's a possibility that it can even be deeper than it was before. Uh, not that that's the expectation. Like guys know this. Like if, if two dudes ever get into a fist fight, they become like best friends like after usually, right? Because <laughs> something about that pain like transforms that relational bond, right? So we all know that. But let's let's take it piece by piece. I think that's helpful. So to sum it up, forgiveness is internal, reconciliation is external. It's a two way street. But let's focus more on forgiveness first. Um, is there anything, any wrongdoing you feel that is unforgivable um, as a Christian? Um, that that is almost deemed like you know what you almost have a pass. I know that might be a trick question, but any thoughts on that? Because I do know some people think about that question. You guys could disagree with me on this, and I say this with great humility, but I would say no. I think we are bound as Christians to forgive. Now I know, you know, when it comes to like simple surface stuff, that sounds doable, but you know, when it comes to like deep offenses, like abandonment from a parent, sexual assault, mm. yeah, that that's that sounds crazy. Uh, the idea of forgiving that person. The only thing that makes me say though, like I feel like though we're still called to forgive, is God forgive us for far more than that, and and the whole premise is we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. I can't help but think that that's meant, that means that we're always called to do the heart work of forgiveness. 
Now to caveat that, that doesn't mean there's like this one-time moment of, you know, I forgave that person and you move forward. Forgiveness is a process and it might take a lifetime to do it. Um, but I do feel there is no sin that's committed against me that I'm not called to work on the process of forgiveness. So yeah, there's nothing that I feel like is unforgivable. Reconciliation is a different story. Yes, and we could talk yes. about that. But forgiveness, I, I do feel like as a believer, I am called to work on the process of forgiveness, regardless of what that person's offense was to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I was I was probably going to answer in the very same manner. And, and I think Tom's caveat, though, is very helpful that as a Christian, I don't think anything is unforgivable because that's the whole point of the gospel. Right. But um, as humans. In this broken world, it doesn't mean that it happens immediately. I think healing and forgiveness takes time. And the bigger the wound, obviously, the bigger the time it's going to take. And if you told yourself, you know what? If your wife cheated on you, you know, let's let's just put it. If, 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 a hus- if I cheated on Sylvia, I'll put it that way. And Sylvia, the next day, messaged you guys like, you know what, guys? I, I forgive Eugene. It's like, mm, I don't think that's real forgiveness because that's a real wound. And forgiveness is in a part healing. And it takes time. So I think the one caveat that Tama is really helpful that like, I think everything is forgivable. The desire for, to forgive is to be Christian, but there's time with it. And don't ever tell yourself like, if the wound is huge, there's never pressure to forgive immediately. I don't know if you would, if you guys would disagree with that, but I think to forgive correctly, like to, to Jason's point, you need to be honest with the pain that happened, which a lot of us don't do. And because of that, we can't forgive. Because if you're not honest with what, the amount of pain you have, how do you know what to forgive? How do you know where to forgive almost? Because there's different parts of your soul that whatever the wrongdoing has done affects you with. So that's the only... And and two quick things with that is, you know, if, if that's too hard to swallow, think of the alternative. Like, so you choose not to forgive them. Like, what's that going to do to you to hold on to that, that anger and that hatred towards that person that actually does actually far more damage to you? And forgiveness, the idea is actually you're, you're not freeing them, you're freeing yourself. And so that's really significant. But secondly, too, forgiveness, you know, if you cheat on Sylvia, forgiveness is not her getting back with you in marriage. Yes. That's a totally different thing. Forgiveness yeah. is, again, super internal. And so I feel like sometimes we confuse those two. That's why it feels really hard. But it's not you got back in the marriage. But again, you're working on what's going on in your heart. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about it, like forgiveness. like, And, you know, it's kind of all theoretical we just mentioned. So we should forgive everything. Um, what are the literal practical steps that you could give um, to begin that process, right? Let's just say a friend, I don't know, practical example, a friend gossiped about you and you just found out that they're just like for a year, they've been talking about behind your back, they've been dragging your name in the mud, they've been telling people that you're trash, whatever it may be. Um, what are the steps to forgive Let's just use that example. If that example is too elementary, you guys can take it wherever you want. But what are the, what are the first practical steps we should take to forgive someone for a wrongdoing? You can add to this, Jason, uh, very quickly. I do think the first step might be honesty. And when you're honest, like, well, what did this person actually do to me? It'll make you realize either how petty it really is. And you, know, you, you could forgive them. You're just holding on to like all these implications and it's probably mapping to like your childhood and it's like wait this person they didn't cause all this they cause it's this little action they did so make you realize how petty you were being or it'll make you admit how harmful it really was and there's a lot more work to do so i do think the honesty portion is 
key. It's huge to admit what it actually is that's bothering you about this person and what they did that hurt you. But I'm not sure if you have anything to add to that, Jason. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that that for sure is the first step. Um, I would say, you know, second step to take from Keller. Um, you know, something Keller said, um, I think it might have been on in his book on forgiveness. Um, but he says that, you know, after you're honest with what has happened to you or what you know, the way that this person has hurt you, the, the second step really is to identify with the perpetrator as being a sinner like you, like yourself, you know, and I think a lot of times what we do after we're being after we're honest, like, let's say it's something big that happened to us. I think our natural instinct is to say, I would never do something like that. Mm. Or, you know, or this, you know, how could this person do that? Yeah. You know, like I could, could never see myself doing that. And we automatically distance ourselves from the perpetrator of the sin rather than identifying as a sinner ourselves. And I, I actually think that's a key element to getting to that next step, which is ob obviously to release that person uh, to, to absorb the debt and release that person from that liability to, you know, to, um, to, to choose not to take vengeance, um, to get revenge on the other person. But I almost feel like that second step is so necessary because I, I don't even think you can even get there until you recognize that you yourself are a sinner and also capable, you know, of doing wrong. Would you categorize that as empathy? Like get to grow empathy for that person? Or are you talking about something a little bit yeah. different there? It's, it's empathy yeah. in your mind? Yeah. Because like, I feel like if, if you if you are always late with people, it's almost like you could forgive people who are late with you because you could understand why that happens. You know, so it's almost like that. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it may like empathy and maybe humility you know, because I think a lot of times it's our pride that is, you know, where we're like a person doing something to us. They're they're beneath us, you know, and it's it's so funny because and I'm sure you guys can all relate to this. The more you counsel people and the more you yourself find yourself in relational um, issues, you realize everyone is a hypocrite and everyone has done the very thing that they are accusing another person of doing. They they themselves have done that to someone else, you know. And I think if once you get to that place of like, oh, yeah, I actually just did that to this other person, or I'm capable of doing that same thing, I find that forgive that next step to forgiveness is so much easier. And, and this also might sound contrasting to Jason's advice, but I think it kind of matches up. And, and this is actually uh, something I got from my own counseling uh, with a therapist where he told me, if someone does something unkind to you, they're revealing more about themselves than who you actually are, um, usually. So meaning, uh, and, and he said, you have to take it as a grain of salt. There has to be a level of maturity that you have because you can use this and be like, man, these people are just stupid because like they got to work on stuff. But when you have a level of maturity, you realize even when you look back on your own life, when you cause pain and when someone wronged you, usually you cause some sort of pain, not because of what they did, but something, something going on in your own life, right? 
And the whole point was just kind of to Jason's point, it, it allows you to stay more curious in your pain, which is very difficult to do, but it's a way out of the tunnel of just being stuck there. Because to, to Jason's point, I think empathy, there's a possibility then of seeing the situation completely differently. And again, I think that piece of advice is like, it can be kind of dangerous because you can weaponize that and be like, oh man, these people are just so stupid and uh, you know, I'm always right. But I think every wrongdoing is more revealing, for, uh, more revealing of the perpetrator than you, if that makes sense. Because usually you feel so hurt because you're like deep down inside, you think that damage being done is revealing about you. It's attacking like your own character or ego. But you have to just let that go and be like, dude, to Tom's point, we're dealing with broken people all around. So I think staring, staying curious in your pain helps you get towards forgiveness. Mm. I, one thing I want to ask you too is, do you ever feel though, no one should ever demand forgiveness, right? On the other end, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I guess this, this will come into play maybe when we talk about reconciliation, but you know, so much of reconciliation is tied to um, visible signs of genuine repentance yep. in on the other side, if there was actual wrongdoing committed. And anyone who tries to push up that timetable and demand forgiveness for something they did, if they truly recognize the weight and gravity of what they did, most likely those are signs that they have not come to a place of genuine repentance. Mm. Um, so those would actually be red flags to me yeah. if a person was demanding someone forgive them. Sounds like control issues. You're trying to, they're not trying mm. to resolve the issue genuinely. You're just trying to control the situation so you could feel better mm. if you demand like a mm -hmm. timeline. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. helpful. So kind of to Jason's point just now, like moving into reconciliation. So now it's a two-way street, right? So forgiveness, anything else to add on forgiveness before we, before we move on? Can I add one mm -hmm, more thing on forgiveness? I think in the same way that you can love someone without feeling love, I do think a lot of times we think that we we can only offer forgiveness oh, when we feel yes. happy yes. emotions. When we feel it. Yeah, yeah. yeah yes. When we feel the emotions, yeah. like, oh, like we're like happy now with that person or something. But just I think forgiveness, like love, is a choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's granted some a lot of times before it's felt and it's kind of um, it's a commitment that you are making um, before God and that person that I'm not going to take. Yep. I'm not going to hold you account like I'm not going to hold you liable for this thing anymore. I'm going to release you and I'm not going to exact revenge doesn't mean I want to be like besties right now. You know, it doesn't have to mean that. You know, and yep. I think sometimes we wait until like, no, nah, no, nah, like I can't forgive this person because I don't I don't feel a certain yeah. way about them. Yeah. Yep. But I actually think that that'll keep you in bondage. 100 percent true. Time. I think people think when you forgive, you're going to not have negative feelings. But no, you're still going to have negative feelings. Sometimes they might still trigger you. So I almost feel like so when do you know you forgave somebody? My litmus test is almost like you can be in a in the same space with them. Like you can and be functional and not weird. Like you can be. Now, if you can't be in the same space with them, something's off. But if you can be, it doesn't mean you're always going to feel like happy and nothing but positive emotions, but you can do it because you're making a choice to be at peace with them and to fellowship yeah. with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to Jason's point, 100% true. Like there, there will still be negative feelings sometimes. And that, that takes time. 
And, and with all this being said, forgiveness is not this linear line of like, oh, step right, one, right. step, and then step sure. D, you're happy. Yes. I think it's like this crazy roller coaster ride where you're going to, like, you forgive someone. I think it's normal, like, to regret it <laughs> later. I think that's that's a sign of true forgiveness. Hey, the, the, that's, perfect example, the perfect example, though, is like forgiving your parents. It's like, <laughs> man, it's going to be, it's not linear. Because <laughs> yeah. every holiday, you're like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> what, 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 what are we doing right now? You know? Um, so it's not again it, when you hear this you're probably like stressing out and it's not linear it's just it's it's a it's a slow progress a slow spiral upward I, I think that's the best way to to, to put it um, with that mm, I like that um, t- Tom anything else to add on forgiveness on the internal part no um, that's good okay so moving on to reconciliation this gets a little more tricky now and I guess we can attack this from two angles um, from someone that's been wronged and also maybe if you've been accused or the perpetrator of of being wronged. Um, how should you start reconciliation? Um, so I, I know that's a very general question, but to Tom's point, we all agree. Don't try and reconcile until you forgive because that's just, uh, that's just world war two waiting to happen after world war one. Right? So once you hopefully feel like you've gone to a place of forgiveness, how do you start? Maybe let's start with, um, the person who's been wronged. How do you start that process of beginning reconciliation? What does it look like? Like, what what's the first practical step? Well, it's pretty rare for just one person to feel wronged, right? Usually, both parties feel sure. to different degrees. I, I do think one very important thing is uh, not just you're ready to reconcile, but the other person is ready. So, like, are your timelines like matching? So that's where Will Smith is doing a good job. He is waiting for Chris Rock to talk to him, you know? And so I do think there's like a a timing that's there where both of you are ready to have that conversation. Um, And I do think when you do reconcile with somebody, you're not just coming to express yourself, although you definitely would want to do that, but you're, again, you're curious about the other person. Like, hey, like this, you did this and it hurt me. And I actually want to know like what happened. Like you're, you're again, you're coming with not condemnation, but with curiosity. I, I feel like that's a good posture to have when you're in the process of reconciliation with someone. I have a question for both of you. Do you feel like as a Christian, whether you're the, um, let's just say for, for back, lack of a better term, whether you're the victim or the perpetrator, though I'm sure you can make an argument that both parties feel a little bit victimized, but whether you're the victim or the perpetrator, that it is that you must always be the first to initiate Mm. a reconciliation process. I, cause I know some people who would say, well, I have forgiven the person, but I'm not going to do anything Um, until they, well, Okay, let me let me ask another. Yeah. Let me ask a, a a step before that. Do you feel Christians are bound to reconcile with one another? So forgiveness, you know, uh, we're kind of saying like you, you you're, yeah, you should. But do you think reconciliation? You're bound to do that too. This is this could be a hot take. I feel like all Christians should desire it, but I don't think all Christians need to do it well mm. and it, it's almost impossible right because we it's a two-way street yeah, it's a two-way and, street and, yes. yeah because forgiveness you're in control but reconciliation and i think jason put it well i think the desire 
if you don't yeah. have the desire after you forgive, then I don't think you forgave them, right? Like there's, there's something missing in that process. Um, and, and this is the thing. Like we said, though, certain pains take years, decades, maybe your whole lifetime to forgive. So yeah. there's it shouldn't be like immediate because I think we're so bound up in if this doesn't get reconciled by next year, then like something's wrong. So I, th- I think understanding that. But I think and, and what if that and what if that and what if that person passed away? You can still forgive them. That's true. You can still forgive them, but you can't reconcile. So I do like that that category of you should have the desire even if you can't or you're not able to. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that answers even your question, Jason, that I think the desire should be there, right? Like, because your question is should Christians move towards. Should they make the first move? Yeah, make the first move. I I, I think more than that, like, context is important. Like, because mm-hmm. to Tom's point, often in our minds, it's like, I'm the defendant or, or you know, I, I'm the perpetrator and you're, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not. It's like very different. So oftentimes, like, you can't take the first step because maybe they're just still pissed at you and they haven't forgiven you. Right. And you can't reconcile. So to me, it's like, I think I think you put it best. The desire is truly to be a mm-hmm. disciple because I think that's a mark of the spirit that like you have that desire that you want to be a minister of reconciliation. Now taking the first step again, that's, that's tricky because context is king in, in, the, in all these situations. That's true. I mean, I guess like two friends is different from like, if there was like a clear power dynamic or, you like, know, there was abuse how, or how do you reconcile with your parents? Cause there's a weird power dynamics too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah. For example, I, I know situations where like I know a friend that was like, dude, I've 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 been I've been seeing five years of therapy and I finally got the strength to go to my dad and say, Dad, we need to reconcile and he was like, What? There's nothing wrong with us and he it set him back like two years of <laughs> <in> therapy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was ta- yeah, exactly. I was talking to someone who, who said they were gonna tell their parents, I forgive you. <laughs> and their parents were like Forgive me for what? <laughs> what did I ever do except yeah, like this provide for you and love you? <laughs> I, but I guess but yeah, it, it, it's it's true though. Like um, like you if so, like, let's say like it's an abuser, mm. you have the desire to reconcile with them. But let's say they're still like abusing, it, you almost like can't. Yes, you yeah. know what I mean. Like yeah. uh, you have to, if they change or if there's some type of sign that they you know want to draw near to you then you could see that as a possibility but if they're not changing or they're still doing what they're not supposed to be doing like it, you'd have that desire but it just can't happen right that's true and i think this goes back to kind of like what are some of the signs of genuine repentance that you would even think to initiate a reconciliation process and i think a big one is are they continuing this hurtful behavior you know um with others you know do you see you know are they um accepting accountability have they even have they even accepted responsibility for the things that they've done to you or to other people you know um i do think all of those things come into play man i just thought about if what if my kids came to me one day saying i forgive you I'd be so mad. <laughs> Dad, I, I forgive you, and I want to. I want to move towards reconciliation. It's like, okay, you little know what shit. I did for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man. So and you're like, I forgive you <laughs> for, for this moment, for right? All here. that you did to me. Yeah. Oh, families are a different 
different story. Uh, maybe we'll have another episode on that. But um, I guess practically, let's you know, there's a lot of theoreticals, and hopefully that's helpful for, for if you're listening. But let's just say you're in a situation where two parties are somewhat amicable or open to reconciliation. Um, if that's the, and I'm sure all three of us, and especially you two, in in your length of ministry, you've been in situations of mediating that. Um, what are what are just good tips or wisdom or just kind of practical advice you could give between people in that process, as rare as that may be? Um, what are some things that we should do uh, during that 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 turbulent time of reconciliation? I mean, okay, one one thing I would add is I think having a mediator is very, very helpful. I, I think almost crucial. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a court of law, there has to be a judge and jury because if you just leave it to the attorneys, nothing will get done, right? So, um, and not that the mediator is acting as a judge per se, but I think having some sort of mediation, whether it's a third party, whether it's a friend or even a pastor, um, I think that's really helpful. I don't think they have to be there throughout the whole process. But having a third party um, view of things is is helpful for clarity and, and misunderstanding. So I think that's one thing I could maybe throw out to start off. Yeah, I, I do. Just to piggyback off that, I do think one key thing is knowing, articulating what it is that you want that, that, that was hurtful mm. or that you want clarity on. And oftentimes we get we're so biased that we get stuck in our own heads. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's private prayer where you express it to the Lord. Um but I also think, agree with you, Eugene, talking about it with somebody, it really helps to narrow down like what is the pain points that you're experiencing and what is it that you would want to express to the person that you're trying to reconcile with. So articulating that is really important. Hmm. So with that, I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask like some random questions to end uh, just on, on dealing with difficult relationships. Uh, and, and Tom, you talked about this a lot, so maybe I can point to you first, and then Jason, you let me know any thoughts. Uh, is there ever a time to end a non-romantic relationship, so basically a friendship, a platonic friendship? Is there ever a time to end a platonic friendship due to a falling out? Because this is the thing. It's weird because breakups are normal, and they're almost accepted. Like, you, you, as a pastor, you wouldn't be like, oh, don't break up because, like, as a Christian— you have to reconcile and get married, right? We, we all agree with that. I think friendship's a little bit different and it's, it's more sad, but uh, are there cases where friendships should should end? Like, what are those, if, if you've seen any, and any any advice on that? I think so. Like, Proverbs talks about, like, not being in a company of fools. Mm. And that doesn't mean, like, you know, people you don't like are automatically fools, but it does give warrant to, like, hey, there's certain friends that we probably not are supposed to be associated with. And so I would say like there are friendships that maybe we shouldn't stay friends with. Um, it, I mean, it could be the extreme example of like there, it's toxic or boundaries are always being crossed or it's making you into like actually a worse person than a more wholesome person. Um, yeah. But also it could be, you know, you, you guys are just distant. And we talked about this many times before friendships. It's not something that's often forced. It's a gift that you give to somebody. And maybe because the distance is so far, you can't ever be friends. You could still be like good and you could still be like, like brothers and sisters but friendship is a little bit different that you can't really force so i feel like it's it, it happens yeah. um yeah and i think there's a warrant for it helpful um jason one, one question i want to ask you specifically uh we talk a lot about family uh and th- again this could be another episode so maybe it's too big of a question but i think family is the most heated toxic and nuclear relational drama and difficulty you deal with right 
um, given what you already kind of, you know, you, you kind of explain your passion about families of origin, those patterns, any advice, general advice on dealing with current parent, son, parent, daughter, brother, 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 sister, like any, any advice on family drama or family difficulty that you would give just generally to people? Cause I know that's probably the biggest pain that a lot of people carry. Yeah, I think especially in Asian Americans, this is very hard because we are such a familial culture. Yeah. You know, um, it's not that easy in as in other cultures where like you can just cut off your parents, you know, um, family is a part of your life. Um, I, I guess I also want to say it's really challenging because a lot of our parents would never get counseling. Or never, you know, they they don't they would never even try to deal with some of the things they're going through. Um, so I mean, I one thing I'm I'm telling our church members all the time, and I'm I have to kind of be mindful myself is learning how to um, maintain healthy boundaries mm. with family. Mm. You know, I think we have so much. Uh, um, hurt from our parents um, but where we still find ourselves kind of tied so closely to them um, and they're where they're Im- impacting so you know they're speaking into our lives and impacting our decisions how we raise our kids and a lot of that hurt is all is still there and so I think there is a way you can kind of honor your parents forgive them but still draw clear boundary lines yeah you know um as to say like oh yeah whether it's explicitly like communicating that to your parents like hey like you know this is going to be the nature of our relationship or or even you know i think for some people where there is like a cultural or language barrier you know you have to kind of create those boundaries implicitly too um and i think that you know i think when whenever we talk about boundaries especially in asian culture it's always seen as, you know, something bad. But I do think that's boundaries is something to be embraced. And I think it actually helps us um, forgive our parents and hopefully get to the p- place of genuine reconciliation. Mm, that's helpful. Um, nice. L- last question, maybe for all of us to end. Um, you know, if you're listening, hopefully you're part of a church and that's why you're listening, just to get more context and clarity. Um, I guess one question I want to ask to end is, yeah, how can we create cultures of uh, church cultures that foster a ministry of reconciliation? Um, we talked a lot about it. I mean, we talked about community groups in itself. And it's funny because we create community groups that are safe, that won't allow for reconciliation, right? Because we hate conflict and tension. That's, that could be a whole nother episode, but yeah, I guess for you guys and, and all of us here, well, well, how, how can we create church cultures that just foster forgiveness and reconciliation rather than bitterness and divisiveness and one with that? One big thing that I'm learning um, through my cohort is, and it's been really humbling and it's been very rebuking, um, but I do think reconciliation and just emotionally healthy relationships has to be modeled. Mm. And I think, you know, 
in the same way that we always talk about how staff culture at some point will trickle down. You know, I do think it has to be modeled at the highest levels of leadership and staff in a church. You know, like staff members being willing to have difficult conversations with one another when they feel wronged um, and seeking reconciliation together. You know, elders, leaders, um, you know, uh, community group leaders. You know, I, I just think it that has to almost become a part of the ethos of the church and people need to see it, like see it modeled and done well. And I think um, over time, you'll see that trickle down. And, and, you know, I, that's something like as someone who's very averse to conflict in general, and, you know, I, like my wife would be the first to tell you I'm the master of Cold War, like tactics and, you know, being passive aggressive and things like that. I realize that one of the greatest gifts I can give to our staff and our community as a leader is to model that kind of candor to give our staff members and leaders permission to express ways that I've hurt them and ways that I've wronged them and for us to seek reconciliation together. Because I think if we can't even model it at the highest level, I mean, you almost can't even expect it to be done just like um, in your community. So I I would say like modeling it is big, Um, making kind of emotional health and talking about it normalizing it and making it a regular part of the culture of your church um, and then providing resources counseling resources prioritizing care and counseling so that people have spaces for them to process and work out some of their family of origin issues or things like that because you're telling people hey these are these are going to be big barriers to your relationships but we're not going to prioritize helping you process any of those barriers at all. It doesn't really make sense. So I do feel like a a lot is on um, the leaders of the church to really create that culture. Yeah, I agree with that. And real quickly, I would just say the gospel has to apply not just vertically, but horizontally. Your relationships, it is a reflection of your gospel grasp. And so I do think we shouldn't feel okay worshiping in church and avoiding people the entire stay of that church like it should press in our hearts that there's something off here which is why paul was so adamant about that like when he wrote to the corinthians like there's something off when there's division like this and so i do think we should take it seriously not just like it's a relational thing that this is like a gospel thing if we are not taking serious the broken relationships that we have so it needs to apply in this day-to-day life-on-life matter because that's that's the, the end goal of the law of the prophets to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind strength but also to love one another and so i do think that's uh, really important mm. that's helpful that's such a that's such a good point because i talk to a lot of people who say like i i now prefer worshiping online because i don't have to deal yeah. with people you know or like i've been hurt too much in the church you know or you know nowadays the moment you have a like a disagreement or a conflict with someone, there are like, you know, a hundred different churches you could go to the following week. And it's just so, there's so many mechanisms that make it very easy to not get involved with people in your community. But I think making a conscious commitment to say like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into the mess. I'm gonna invest in people knowing that they're gonna hurt me and knowing that 
this is part of practicing the gospel um i think is huge that's helpful um i would only add, there's this great piece in new york times and i think the author is christian her name is tara burton um, it's called the problem with letting therapy speak invade everything and the premise is it's not self-care when you hurt your friend's feelings and cut them off um, because that's just the dominant cultural uh, vibe and this is the thing in church if you're listening to this you probably have a church doesn't ever like you have to see the people that you you know have problems with every week for a reason like in hebrews there's a habit of mean together and a part of it is to build a community and but another is, uh, part of being a church is you're forced every sunday by habit and by design to deal with people that will for sure hurt you um and it's an opportunity to practice all these commandments that paul gives us in the epistles to forgive and love one another right in first john it's very clear to john's uh, to tom's point you don't love people you probably don't love god fully too so I think seeing, like, to Tom's point, church is an opportunity. Because this is the thing. In your own life, you have every out. Like, if your friend that's not involved in a church hurts you, you can easily cut them off, right? At workplace, you know, you, you can do HR and all that stuff. But at church, you can't. And I always see it as, like, why? Why is that? I, I think God is forcing you to deal with people that have hurt you for a reason. And I think seeing it as an opportunity and also a, a, a way to kind of get deeper with God to Tom's point because the gospel isn't just vertical it's horizontal but I think mm-hmm. when you fix the horizontal your vertical also gets deeper because then like when you got to forgive people you really need God like it, there's a difference between praying about a work uh, interview compared to like dealing with seeing your ex every week at church rather than leave and if they leave that's on them or if you leave that's on you so that's that's the only thing I would add to um, to build healthier cultures that's so true like uh, when you can experience the costliness of forgiveness like how difficult it is in some sense it also can make the gospel that much more beautiful you know because yeah you're going through it and you realize it's so hard for you to forgive this one offense and then all of a sudden kind of like to then see what Christ has forgiven you for, it just has a different, carries a different kind of weight. You know, you know why the church sucks right now? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but big part of it is no, no one forgives. We build our small groups, like we mentioned, so that you don't have to forgive. <laughs> like that's a problem. I've just, I, like, I just realized that, right? Um, and we can't fix it overnight, but just, yeah, just like, come on, come on now. And, and you know, I'm sure we're being hypocritical too, and we're not perfect at this. So with that, I hope that was helpful. Um, I hope, I hope you, know, you have some clarity in, in dealing with people that hurt you or difficulty in your life. Um, so with that, yeah, thanks for listening. If you could take a moment to rate or, or subscribe, we would really appreciate it. But with that, thanks for listening and hope to see you in our next episode.